Welcome to the Cosmic Business Podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, business coach, and CEO of Weave Your Bliss, a company with the goal to help a million spirit-led entrepreneurs build a cosmic business around their genius so that they can earn wildly well and bankroll the change they want to see in the world. A cosmic business is a new paradigm business that believes in collaboration over competition, building a business around your unique genius, aligning to the planets and your intuition, leading with your values, putting your health and the health of the planet first, treating people fairly and building giving into your business model. Sounds fabulous, right? On this show, I will take you behind the scenes of my thriving multi-six-figure business, including strategy on closing more sales, nurturing your community online, plus astrological insights to optimize your business and life. We'll also feature conversations with spirit-led business owners, creatives, and change makers to inspire you. I'm coming to you from our regenerative farm in rural Maine, my happy place, where we are currently creating space to welcome community for retreat and earth reconnection. Let's jump into the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. It is Christmas Day for those who celebrate. Um, I just really wanted to share this particular episode with you this week because I'm talking to Ramdev Dale Borglum, who is the executive director of the Living Dying Project, and also a devotee, a student of Maharaji Neem Kroli Baba, who spent a lot of time in India with Ramdas and Krishna Das. And he tells some stories here about that time. Dale, Ramdev Dale is also a client who I've worked with the Living Dying Project, which he talks about here, and the Conscious Dying Movement, of which he was one of the founders. Um, I have helped them with their marketing and been engaged to really help them streamline their message and really think about how they can bring in more income as a nonprofit. So we talk a lot here specifically about the project, about how the fear of death holds us back and what to do about it, tools that we can use when we're with someone who is dying so we can connect and support them and ourselves. Um, We talk about Dale's journey and his background. And we also talk about how spiritual practice is really about getting us into our bodies, ideally, so that we can be in these situations as the world is changing. And, you know, there's a lot of difficult situations that are emerging. Like how, how are we going to be with those situations? So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you are interested in working with me right now, I've got the Cosmic Business Lab starting January the 2nd. So you can check out that in the show notes. There's going to be a link there. And I highly recommend checking it out. That's my year-long program where you get access to all of my courses and resources. There are three live calls every month to keep you connected, to keep you on a strategy. We do experiments every month. And this is really a program to help you strengthen your message and get really comfortable with marketing. Find your sweet spot so that you feel good and easeful in your selling and you're starting to convert with more ease so that you can grow and scale your business. So if that sounds good to you, definitely check out the Cosmic Business Lab. There's also an upgrade. There's still spots available for the mastermind, which starts in March. So you have those two extra months where you can have access to the Cosmic Business Lab. And then you join me for regular coaching calls plus one-on-one support. So get my eyes on your copy, on your content um, with me helping you really with the message hands-on. Also, I support you through strategy helping you create your offers, niching, all of those things. So all the tools are inside the lab. And the mastermind is just you getting me as your team member in 2024. Okay, so without further ado, I will introduce Ramdev Dale Borglum to you, who helped found the Conscious Dying Movement in the West while working with Ramdas and Stephen Levine. He's also been the Executive Director of the Living Dying Project in Santa Fe since 1986. And, the San, and also in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's a co-author with Ramdas, Daniel Goleman, and Dwarka Bonner of Journey of Awakening, a Meditator's Guidebook, and has taught meditation since 1974. 
Ramdev lectures and gives workshops on topics of meditation, healing, spiritual support for those with life-threatening illnesses, and on caregiving as a spiritual practice. He has a doctorate degree in mathematics from Stanford University, and we talk about that in the interview. So I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Dale. Welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Paula. I'm so excited to have you here. I feel so blessed that I've had you, you know, I've been working with you and your project and just got a little bit of immersion into your story because you shared with me like an early copy of your book. And so I'm just really excited to have you here and to get to talk to you a little bit more today. Well, I'm excited to be here too. We've been trying to do this for two days and the trees have been falling down <laughs> by your house. So finally, finally, there's electricity in Maine. Yes. Um, so maybe we can start with your journey to being on the spiritual path. I know you started out studying mathematics and I'm sort of curious, like how did that become like a spiritual endeavor or is there some, is there some correlation or not? Well, I'm of a certain age that when I was in high school and just starting college, Sputnik went up and the American government got all freaked out and they sort of tried to push smart kids into science. So I ended up at Berkeley and I had no idea what I wanted to do. We didn't even have guidance counselors back at my school. I got A's in math and science and B's in English and German and social science. So I figured, oh, I must be a mathematician. And I, I graduated and I, I went to Stanford Graduate School. And then I started taking acid. And I said, wait a minute, what am I doing? It's <laughs> like, wait a minute, do I want to sit in an office the rest of my life doing mathematics? And I, I didn't think I really wanted to do that. And right about that time, I met Ramdas, who had come back from India after having been Professor Alpert. And what year is this? Harvard. Just put us in time. This was uh, 1968, 69. Okay. So I was going to Stanford and I was, I was really pretty unhappy uh, studying math, growing up as a Danish Lutheran, kind of repressed. And then I started taking psychedelics and you know, something's not making sense here. So I started doing really intense yoga. I was like swallowing cloths and moving them around in my intestines. And I was a, fruitar mm. I was a fruitarian for a while. I wouldn't eat anything that hadn't fallen off a tree. And it was completely crazy because I wasn't getting any, any protein and doing intense pranayama to the point of passing out and, you know, the whole thing. But really, really didn't know what I was doing. There, there was not a lot of teachers. I was kind of like groping in the dark. And I met Ramdas. So whenever he would come to Northern California, he'd stay at a friend of mine right across the street from where I lived in Palo Alto. So he and I got to be drinking buddies. And he had this devotional quality, which is what I'd been missing. I mean, I, I, was, I was doing the yogi thing, you know, trying hard, but he really brought out this, this heart quality. But in the context of being somebody who is incredibly intelligent, articulate, and grounded. So it was not some woo-woo thing like the Hare Krishnas were going on then. And I kind of, you know, it just seemed like they didn't have their feet on the planet in a way that I felt I needed to uh, be. So I got my PhD. I went off to India and eventually made my way up to the Himalayas where Ramdas was with some friends of mine and the telegram came came saying, Maharaji has returned, come immediately. So this was the first time a bunch of Westerners were allowed to be around Nim Karoli Baba, Ramdas's guru, my guru. And every day we'd go from this hotel in this hill station, Nanital, in Ramdas's VW bus, we'd pile 12, 15 people in this bus and go down this mountain valley and up and over to the other valley. And there was this temple and there was Maharaji. And the first time I met him, all my struggles, all this, I'm on the wrong planet, what's wrong here? It just evaporated in a second. I felt for the first time like I was home. And not that it became easy after that. It certainly didn't. I mean, there was a lot of confronting my ego and being around somebody who kept loving me, even though he knew how neurotic I was, right? It took me a long time to start believing that I was as loving as he seemed to think I was, right? That that it was so that Rambas tells all these stories about being with Maharaji and how great it was. And it was. But it was also very confrontational because if there was any lack of relationship between he and I, it was my fault because I was not fault. But it was like because he was available, I wasn't available. I felt like I was dying of thirst and he was this ocean of nectar pouring into me, but I was a sieve and it was all just going through the holes and there was just a few drops left, right? So, it was, it was, it was really frustrating that there was this 
this being manifesting pure love and and uh, wisdom and compassion. And I was still feeling pretty neurotic. We had what we called the grace race. Who could get the name first? Who could get the mantra? Who could get the seat right up in front to be rubbing his foot? And who was in the back? Who did he pay attention to today? That was kind of painful for all of us. But, but at the same time, it was punctuated with moments of such indescribable feelings of connectedness and spaciousness and openness that everything else paled by comparison, that you knew that everything was okay, that Maharaji would say things like, I'm always in communion with you. So, imagine if you believed, if I believed, what is it like if you really feel that the Guru, that God is always there each moment, right? When you lie down to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow, it's the pillow, but it's also God's lap. I mean, it's like, oh, you're, you're, it's always that intimate. It's that, it, it was a very informal, intimate scene where he's just lying around eating and rubbing his feet and, and playing. And, and it was not like you'd imagine being at a, like a, uh, an ashram where there were rules and here's the time to eat and now's the time to chant. And it was all just whatever's happening mm. in a really quite wonderful way. I'm curious because I've heard Krishna Das talk about his time with Maharaji as well, and, and that Mar Maharaji never gave him instruction. He told him to chant the name. So I'm, I'm curious how this experience changed your practice or helped you see your practice differently. Well, when I was, when at a certain point, Ramdas and me and a bunch of people got kicked out of India, we got to quit India notice because we'd overstayed our visas. So I was leaving. I knew I was only going to be there a few more days. And I came to Maharaji and said, Hey, I used to be a scientist. Do you have any instructions for me when I go back to America? And I thought he'd say, Oh, become a psychotherapist or something like that. He said, just keep saying the mantra that I gave you. <laughs> it was the only instruction he gave me. Maharaji was really not a teacher in that sense that, that he said like very general things like love God, serve people, feed people, remember God, right? It, it was, it was more the sense of presence, the more the sense of trusting love, trusting who you are. So, I mean, he did say a few things here and there, but a lot of it was you'd be there and you'd have a question and he'd be talking to somebody else and your question was answered without you even saying anything that all of a sudden you knew. One example was right in the beginning, I've just gotten there and this friend of mine, Steve, who later became Mohan and I with Maharaja and a bunch of Indian people. And he was talking to the Indian people as being translated. And he, he turned to us and said, how much do you pay for milk in America? And Steve did a quick calculation in his head and said, a certain number of rupees per kilo, Maharaji, which is the way you buy milk in India. Maharaji turned to the Indians and went on and on. He was so excited. Can you imagine how much they pay for milk in America? On and on and on and on. And I'm thinking, I just got my PhD from Stanford. We're talking about the price of milk. I want to get enlightened. What's uh, going on here? And he turned back to us. And once again, he said, how much was it? Mohan told him again. And for another five or 10 minutes, he went on talking about it. I'm thinking, maybe Ramdas was wrong. Maybe this guy isn't who I think he is. And all of a sudden, there was this explosion in my head that I knew came from him. It's hard to describe how. But the message was, we can talk about interesting things. We can talk about important things. But that just makes the mind busy. If we're just talking about mundane things, we can just talk about bullshit, the price of milk. And it gives us the opportunity to dive into this ocean of bliss. And I went into this bliss state that I was in for the rest of the day. I could barely navigate my life for the next eight or 12 hours. I was like, just, and so he, he had kind of shown me that it wasn't about uh, specific teachings or learning something or studying the scriptures as much as this ocean of love is always available. Just trust, just be kind to people, love people. I'm here all the time with you. It's all okay. So tell me how this led to you getting involved in the conscious dying movement and even founding that. Right. Well, when I came back from India, I first of all had hepatitis and malaria at the same time. Yikes. <laughs> which was, which was, which, which I almost died. It was like, I was really a mess. And I just knew that I didn't want to be a scientist again. So I got various jobs. I was a, I was a chef. I managed a musical group. And eventually, Ramdas invited me to be the executive director. It sounds more impressive than it is. I was basically his assistant running this thing called the Hanuman Foundation, which was a nonprofit entity, an umbrella for service-oriented projects like the prison ashram project, where 
Bolozov was going around saying, being in prison is a lot like being in an ashram, except you haven't chosen to be there, but you can use this as an ashram. They feed you, they take care of you, you got your little cell to meditate in. At one point, Ramdas taught a workshop on the East Coast, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came as a student. And Stephen Levine was the meditation teacher at this workshop. Stephen and Elizabeth really hit it off. She invited him to become the Buddhist meditation teacher at her workshops about dying. Not conscious dying yet, but just dying itself. She was really the first person to bring dying out of the closet, if you will, here in America, be able to talk about it in polite society. They talked together for a while. She then started getting involved in kind of violent psychodrama. You can't die well if you're negative, war on negativity. I hate you, mommy, beating up the telephone directory kind of thing. So Stephen started teaching on his own, not just the Buddhist meditation part, but you couldn't be at her retreats without really getting humanly involved with all these stories that were going on, right? So Ramdas invited Stephen to do what he was doing as part of the Hanuman Foundation. Stephen called it the Dying Project. And very quickly, it became clear to Ramdas and me that this was by far the most interesting thing going on in our foundation. We were, Ramdas and I and another friend had a house in Santa Cruz, and Stephen lived on the other side of town. So we started teaching with Stephen, traveling around the country, teaching workshops, lectures, and things like that. And eventually thought, why don't we all move somewhere where we can actually have a place to put these practices into manifestation. So, the idea behind all of this is that at this point, the Dharma spiritual thought was permeating childbirth and psychotherapy and gardening and maintaining your motorcycle and you know, all kinds of different things. But that the encounter with death was the place where there was the most unexamined fear in our society. So, that we felt that bringing the Dharma to dying, to caregiving, to grieving was one of the most direct things we could do to help the collective awakening. In a way, as a recovering mathematician, my equation is all fear is basically fear of death, and fear of death is exactly where you're not enlightened, where you're still caught in feeling separate, where you don't tune into the place of oneness, if you will. So, we moved to Santa Fe. Stephen got married to Andrea, decided he didn't want to be with dying strangers. He'd rather be with her. Ramdas, really good at initiating things, not so great at following through. He left. So, there I was without a job in Santa Fe saying, what am I going to do with my life? And I said, well, why don't I start the Dying Center, which I did. And this is the early 80s. And over three and a half years, we had 86, 87 people come there. For all the people that were on the staff, they said it was the most challenging, the most rewarding thing they'd ever done. There's almost always somebody dying in the next bedroom, right? And that person would die and then somebody else would move in. Sometimes there'd be two or three people. So it was it was really all-consuming work. But Trungpa Rinpoche said that until you come into intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. So, I'm really not so interested in dying. That's the dirty secret. I'm interested in awakening. I'm interested in me awakening. I'm interested in you awakening. What is the most direct thing I can do to deal with my fear of death, to move toward this surrender into my inherent wholeness, into enlightenment, if you will? And for me, it's this work of being with dying people, being with death, reminding me what it is that's going on here. And in fact, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have these mind-turning truths, these truths that turn your mind toward practicing the Dharma. And the first one is, you're going to die, but you don't know when. So, what could be more obvious intellectually? But if, in fact, you and I, Paula and Dale, and all the listeners, if you didn't know that you were going to survive to the end of this podcast, and you don't know you are, I mean, it's a pretty good bet statistically, but we don't know. If we really don't know the, the moment of death, then what does that say about how willing we are to love each other, to be present, to be fully in our lives right now, rather than saying, well, I'm going to wait till tomorrow to do that thing I wanted to do. Or this is the moment. This is the only moment in which to awaken. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking before, I, you know, I was going to ask you how this differs from hospice. I mean, I know, but I think like just parsing out that piece that it's about living consciously and it's about facing your own death while you're with the dying. But then also, if you are dying, what are those things that you're actually 
bringing forward to help someone in that moment? And like, maybe you can talk about some tips. Like if somebody who's listening is, has someone in their life that has, you know, a terminal condition or they're sitting with someone who's dying or they will sit with someone who's dying. Like, what are the things that they can actually do to help them? I look at caregiving as work on yourself. As long as I think I'm at the bedside to fix this other person, I'm here to help, then I'm probably missing a lot of the signals in me that will help me be more awake. So that I'm trusting that my inherent nature is goodness, is kindness. And that if I'm just working with my own signals, if I'm letting go of the places that I keep feeling caught in, then I will be the best caregiver. So that hospice is a team approach. There's nurses, there's a doctor, there's social workers. And sometimes there are spiritual support volunteers. What the Living Dying Project doing is doing that's different, though, Paula, is that we're not saying just we're going to use religion to make the best of a bad situation. But what we are saying is the time of physical death right before, right after, according to the world's mystical traditions, is the best opportunity in an extended lifetime in which to awaken. If we look at all of the literature about near-death experiences, which is incredibly consistent, people almost die, the consciousness leaves the body. If they're blind, they can see. If there's morphine in the bloodstream, it's not affecting them. And they, they come up to the light. They don't merge into the light because it's not a full death experience. They come back into their body. And the near-death experience is the first part of the dying experience. But what's, what's being said there is that we're not just the body. And if we can remember that right now, that yes, we have a body, we're not trying to do some spiritual woo-woo stuff and say, oh, it's just the body. But remembering that our lives are in the context of this much greater wholeness, that who you are, who I am, is so much vaster than just the body and the personality structure. If people have taken a strong psychedelic, if people have gone very deeply into meditation or had triplets or whatever you've done to go beyond normal consciousness, you, you go into that place where you get the fact that there is this much larger, deeper level of consciousness that it's not invalidating the fact that you're in Maine and I'm in California and that we both have on a pair of glasses, but it's saying that there's something else really fundamental going on here. And the dying reveals that. If we had life without death, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, right? We'd be out just having a good time all day, probably, right? So, so that the very fact that life is, is finite, that it's impermanent, that the body will eventually end, can be the inspiration to be more awake right now. So, when you meet somebody, you can kind of get an intuitive sense. How much have they process their own fear of death? How much are they still uh, trying to pretend they're not going to die, that they're living on the surface? We had all those people come to the dying center, and there was an interesting occurrence where somebody who's a very well-known meditation teacher in Santa Fe, I won't say who it was, came to the dying center. She had, she'd been meditating for many decades. She had a lot of students. I thought, oh, this is going to be great uh, to, just to be around her. She was really afraid of dying. And her wisdom stopped at her head. Then the next guy that came was a, was a Hispanic shepherd who had been taking care of sheep in the mountains of the New Mexico-Colorado border. And he wasn't afraid of dying at all. He had watched the changing of the seasons, animals being born and dying. He was not a meditator, but he had gotten in touch with life and death and fear of death and all those things. So, it's really not what you know. It's what's What's going to be there when you're having a nightmare tonight, right? Or you're in an automobile. So, just as an example, when, you, when you're dying, you might be in a car where the person you love most in the world is screaming in terror because the car is going out of control. What do you do then? Do you trust Ram, Ram, Ram? Or do you trust your true nature? Or do you say, oh my God? Or when you're dying, you might be on the floor of the Walgreens or the CVS or whatever they call it where you live, and some stranger is ripping off your shirt and breathing in your mouth. Somebody you've never seen before in your whole life. We don't really know what it's going to be like in that moment. Each moment is of life is preparation in a totally non-morbid way to be fully present now and then when we die and to take more full advantage 
of dying into wholeness, dying into who we are. So that all the all the mystical traditions say that right now, you're in the light, I'm in the light. There's not a path to enlightenment because we are enlightened. It's the path of enlightenment. But we don't, it's hard to remember that because it seems like you're 3,000 miles away and we keep buying into only the level of separateness, which is in the context of wholeness. It's, it's both. So that as I support somebody who's dying, one tip you asked for a, a tip for a caregiver, one tip is can we remember that you and your friend, your client, your patient, your beloved, whoever it is, that both of us are both human with a story and there's suffering and there's the whole human drama and it's perfect and it's whole at the same time. So it's it's not so hard for me to do one or the other. The trick is, can we keep both alive at the same time? So as I'm talking with you right now, nobody's dying here, but it's really exactly the same job, if you will. There, there's two of us and I'm trying to be a good podcast interviewer. E, and you're trying to be a good interviewer and all that. But can we remember at the same time that it's just God unfolding? It's just the mother. It's all this tantric reality that it's the divine mother showing herself through these different forms. Can we be doing both of those things at the same time? And yes, there are certain tricks. There are practices, the ah breath and tonglen, other things that can be done at the end of life. And in fact, the Living Dying Project has courses and workshops where people can we ha have a training that's ongoing, an online training that people can take. Uh, and in January, February, March, uh, there are going to be some CEU workshops that are open to the public where they're instead of recorded, they're live either in person here in California or some of them are Zoom, where we, we go into that question in great depth. Mm, so good. So I think there's so many things that you just said. The fear of death is something that I want to kind of sit with for a moment because I feel like it in my own spiritual practice, I've found that this is kind of at the bottom of every other fear. Like every other fear is just the fear of death. It's a, and everything is a sort of death. You know, I got a divorce about 12 years ago and it felt like a death, right? Because I lost a lot of different things and I, it changed the trajectory of my life in a really big way. And so. I was also thinking about how in India, I would go up into the Himalaya in Uttarkashi, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. It's up north of Dehradun. And the roads I've been up there. are super treacherous. It's a one-way road curving <laughs> around the mountain. And it's like a death drop directly down into the Ganga. Right. So I would just be doing... And you look down there and, yeah. the, and you look down there and there are... Rocks. <laughs> vehicles down there right. too sometimes. Totally. Dead buses down in the ravine. And the guy who's driving the bus has his door bungee corded open. So he can jump out, but nobody else gets out of the bus when it goes over the side. Well, I always took a taxi because I was <laughs> I wanted to have my own experience. But also they honk when they go around the corner to let someone know who's on the other side. But in your mind, you can think like, what if they don't honk in time and that other car is coming around the corner, right? And at night, it's even right, worse. Right. So, you know, these yeah. were moments where I really had to be like, okay, I could literally die right now. And I would just do the Hanuman Chalisa, like the whole ride, which is, you know, like four hours from Dehradun or six hours from Hardwar. I would just do the, the Chalisa the entire time to help relieve myself of that fear of literally like sliding to my death. I think that was a really powerful practice, but this idea that like so many things you know, anxiety is like the fear of the ego being killed. Or I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this fear of death, how it limits us, and maybe like some specific ways that you have worked on that yourself. And is that just sitting with yeah. the dying or are there other practices you use? No, so there are some really specific practices. And one of them you pointed out, it doesn't have to be the Chalisa. But when, when we were in India, Ramdas had this slogan, fear, comma, no faith faith, comma, no fear. So that there's this balance between fear and faith. And if you've got more fear than faith, you're going to be scared. If you have more faith than fear, you're not going to be scared. So one of the things you can do is increase your faith. So there you are, the car might go over the side, you're remembering Hanuman, Hanuman the protector. Uh, it doesn't have to be Hanuman, of course, it can be the mother, it can be Jesus, it can be Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, it can be whatever you like. But one way of dealing with fear is increasing your faith. However you do that, saying a mantra, remembering God, 
doing the chalice is one of the best ones around, of course, for those of us in the monkey cult. Okay. Another one is working with the chakras. The first chakra, the root chakra, fully inhabiting that is the antidote to fear. The very first thing a little person learns, in fact, from the second trimester to about two years old, she's learning to get grounded, to trust the sense of support and nourishment and groundedness. And feeling lack of support is fear. So that I had very loving parents, but one of my first memories is putting a bobby pin in an electrical outlet. My very first memory, it knocked me across the floor. And just by being curious, I picked up this thing off the floor. I remember feeling joyful. I mean, I was crawling. I was so good at crawling. The sun was coming in from the right side. My dad was shaving over there. And I said, oh, there's those two holes in the wall. These two things obviously go in there. It's a perfect fit. I didn't have any words yet, but that was the idea. And boom, I I got the shock of my life. So that all of us had things going on very early in life where we didn't feel safe. So that it's not too late to have a happy childhood, they say. And we can go back and do grounding practices to deal with the places where we're caught in fear. And then the most basic practice probably is, what does it feel like to be afraid? Because usually when people experience fear, they get fixated on the trigger and don't feel the fear itself. Fear arises, the story begins, I'm afraid because the car might go over the side. I'm afraid because I've got uh, a pain in my body. I hope it's not cancer. What if it's cancer? What's going to happen then? Oh, my God. Right? So that almost always fear arises. We don't actually feel what it's like somatically. What What is this present fearful moment? And healing happens only through at least first being present for what it is that's happening, not thinking about it, not trying to understand it. Maybe that can come later. You go to a therapist and work things out through long talk therapy, whatever. But even talk therapy is about getting you to feel what's going on right now, right? To slow down enough to get out of the story enough to, okay, here's what it feels like to be afraid. So I've got this kind of corny thing I've come up with. I call it the tantric three-step dance as opposed to the country two-step. The first step is exactly what we're talking about. Can you be with the sensations of this moment, sadness, fear, anger, happiness, whatever it is. The second step is then, can you open your heart to it? And the third step is, can you realize the tantric expression of this? Can you see that even this is sacred, even though it's scary? Okay, so be with the sensations, let go of the narrative, open your heart to what it feels like to be you right now, or what it feels like to be that other person right now. And then this is just awakened energy. This is the this is the tantric reality. It's just energy itself. It's just the goddess expressing herself. Uh, it might be a beautiful image. It might be a not beautiful image. It's all the goddess. It's it's all the beloved. The beloved can only be everything, including this. So I am curious. You've been with a lot of people as they were dying. Do you know how yeah. many? And and if so, just through your experience, what? is something you've noticed about the dying process that you can share with us that you think might be valuable? I haven't kept track. I mean, I don't exactly know what it means to be with somebody who's dying. Often I'll be there, and then I leave and the person dies that night or an hour later, or I'm talking to somebody on the other side of the country and they die right after you get off the Zoom or the phone or whatever it is. People approach it in obviously so many individual ways. And people die the way they live. This conversation is our preparation for dying. To the extent that we're just hanging out in love here, then that's going to make it a little easier to die. To the extent we're saying, oh, I hope I'm doing a good enough job, making it a little harder to die consciously, right? So, certainly, there are a lot of people with with the right kind of support are able to surrender into dying, who are able to really appreciate the opportunity who go beyond fear. There are a lot of people who are afraid. Uh, And sometimes people are really afraid right at the very end, everything relaxes. Uh, I had a client once who was, he was so angry. He was one of these guys, one of those 
pickup truck that was so big you had to get a stepladder to get into the pickup truck practically. And he had this big, huge motorcycle. He was just mad at the world that he was dying. And I'd come over to see him every every so often, every couple times a week, maybe. And he would just he would just swear up a blue streak. He would just be so mad, mad at his wife, mad at the world. And I kept coming back, although I said, you know, I've got better things to do than you just like swearing at me all the time. But finally, at the end, he got weak enough that he surrendered into dying. And he became very soft. His wife climbed into bed with him. They forgave each other. It's like this really beautiful thing that happened. It doesn't happen all the time. At the same time, I have this big advantage that the people that I see are people that come to the Living Dying Project. These are people that want spiritual support. That's only a very small subpopulation of people who are actually dying, right? A lot of people are saying, I don't want to die, or a lot of people are dying demented or drugged out of their minds or, you know, all kinds of things. But going back to what I was saying before, this notion that that dying Spiritual, the spiritual dying process, which can begin before physical dying and certainly extends after someone dies, is the best opportunity for awakening. It's not that we should want to die now, but we're, we're preparing by being alive now. And that each moment, if, if we really pay attention, if you've ever been at a longer meditation retreat, you might have had the experience that each moment is dying. As soon as you experience something, it's gone. As soon as you experience it, it's gone. Nothing solid. Your body isn't solid. Your mind is. It's all dying moment to moment to moment. Because of that, you mentioned the word anxiety. Because of that, there's this fundamental anxiety, this tension between the ego's need to have a solid point of view, a place from which to stand, and the inherently groundless nature of reality, the, 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 the spiritual nature of the way things are, right? So that the ego is in this really tough spot because, first of all, it doesn't even really exist. It's a, it's a concept. And second of all, as a spiritual person, I'm trying to get rid of it or at least stop identifying with it, right? So, there, there's this, this anxiety. One of my podcasts is called Anxiety and Emptiness. And basically, the, in, in Buddhism, the nature of the heart is empty, empty of grasping, but each moment dying into the next moment, no grasping, total openness. And that's really scary. The ego structure, all the conditioning from childhood wants to know. Krishnamurti wrote a book called Freedom from the Known. What a great title. Do we have to know or can we just let life happen, but be fully engaged with it at the same time? You were with your father when he died too, right? I was, and my mother. And I think you, in your book, which is not out yet, but people should be excited um, that it may come out because it's very, very beautiful read. <laughs> it may come out, right? Yeah. So um, in there, I think you asked him the question, what do you think is happening right now? Is that the correct question? Yeah. So that's a that's a, a wonderful story. Let me tell the whole sure, story. Go for it. It'll make a lot a lot more sense. Ten years before my father died, I was in a car with him. He and I were in the front seat. My girlfriend and my mom were in the back seat, driving around a very beautiful place in California by the ocean. And I said, "Hey, Dad, next weekend I'm going to teach a workshop in Berkeley about conscious dying. You want to?" me to tell you what I'm going to talk about. And he said, isn't it a beautiful day today? He didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> right. he, he didn't want his son to tell him anything about dying, right? So, fast forward, he's in, lying in a hospital bed. He's about a week from dying. And I'm sitting there and this intuitive thought came to me, not a thought, but this intuitive impulse came to me. And I asked him, what do you think is going on with you right now? which is a very useful technique when you're caregiving somebody because there usually is some kind of implied contract. What are we willing to talk about? What are you willing to explore here? So, I can't go into some hospital room of some stranger and say, hey, I'm from the Living Dying Project. Let's talk about death. I'll say, well, who are you? I don't <laughs> want to talk about that, right. right? Asking somebody, what's going on? What do you want? What's happening here? Allows them to tell you what they think the contract is. So, my dad, I said, what do you think is going on? He could have said, isn't it a beautiful day today? But he said, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> he, he invited me in for the first time ever, really. And I said, well, I really hope I'm wrong, but it seems to me you're dying, that you're not going to be around much longer, dad. And he said, you know, that's the way it feels to me too. And we had the, the most real conversation by far that that man and I ever had. And at the end of the conversation, he said, go home to your mom. 
20 minute automobile drive away, bring her to the hospital, tell her that I want to talk to her because I feel I'm dying. I want to talk to her about it. So I drive home and I said, mom, dad feels like he's dying and he wants to talk to you about it. And she said, no, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) I guess she had to know my parents to see the humor and all that. But anyway, I, I did bring her to the hospital and they talked and they wept and she got in bed and held them and they, they cried more and uh, really connected, which might have happened otherwise, but I really don't think it would have. Yeah. The power of a good uh, that, question, that, that, right? The power of, of like just a question, an open question and listening, getting curious. But But even beyond that, I'd like to disabuse people of the notion that being with dying people is exciting all the time. It's usually not much is going on for long periods of time, punctuated by intense moments of something, right? So I was there with my dad. He was kind of tired. Not much was happening. And I just had that notion to ask him. And often there's just this this moment that appears out of nowhere where here's a, a moment where things can break open. And I don't that you have to be quiet enough to notice that. Uh, it doesn't look the same every time, but usually there's just some feeling that there's this crack, crack in the world, if you will, to go into this deeper place with the two of us right now. Mm. Maybe you and I can do that right now ourselves. <laughs> Maybe that was the crack. That was the crack. <laughs> um, so that's so beautiful. And I think that's really helpful to people listening too, because you know, a lot of us do sit with our parents at the end of life. And a lot of us have parents that maybe aren't on the same path or that we haven't been able to have those deep conversations with. And so hopefully our practices are setting us up to be listeners and to be able to be calm and be receptive in those moments and take advantage of that moment that maybe there's an opening. Like my dad recently had a surgery. He wasn't going to die. I mean, it wasn't, uh, it was a hard surgery, but he was definitely, the prognosis was good. But he had a really hard time in the hospital. He was in the hospital for about five days and got um, ICU delirium and was like a little bit confused and he wasn't keeping his lunch down. And so he started crying to me. Like he just was sobbing. My dad's never done that. So it was like this really meaningful opening where I just got near to him and I just asked a few very simple questions, you know, and he's saying, I've been a bad person. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, dad, I love you no matter what, you know, just being very sweet and encouraging, but allowing him to talk and allowing him to feel safe so that he could have that moment of release, you know? So, yeah, I appreciate that. So my feeling is that in this really strange time in which we're living, that the best spiritual practice is an inner contemplative practice combined with an outer relationship with death. Whether it's being with your father or being a living dying project volunteer or working at the local hospice or something. But until you really know in your bones you're going to die, spiritual practice will uh, kind of be able to give you a better personality, make a little more money, uh, be a little happier. But the, the real deep fruit of awakening comes when you really know how precious this moment is. This is the only moment in which we can awaken. This one. Not the next one or the last one. And there's this willingness to die. So this name of the project that I'm the director of is the Living Slash Dying Project. It's about the slash, the way that the fact we're dying informs how we live and how we live determines how we are going to die, being at that interface. And a lot of what we do at the Living Dying Project isn't really necessarily only about dying and grieving. It's about awakening, about taking that motivation and I've created this recent course called The Practical Guide to Freedom, where it's like an overview of the spiritual path, uh, going from motivation to embodied mindfulness, to compassion, to tantra, to non-duality in a very accessible way. And that, that to me, I'm not that interested in dying, as I say. I want to awaken. and But this is, to me, the most intimate way of being with my life. This is what what peels back my defenses in the most immediate, direct, naked sense, if you will. Mm. Well, can I ask you a few rapid fire questions, Dale? Go for it. (laughs) So what's one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Oh, well, there's this great guy, Mr. Tiwari, who was a dear devotee of Maharaji. And he kept saying to me, Ramdev, calm yourself. Ramdev is my spiritual name. All he said was calm yourself. He didn't say, remember God. He didn't say anything complicated. And I have a personality where I have so much energy and I get so excited about things. And for me, just just calming down and being there, just trusting that if I calm down, that wholeness is there. 
it's inherent. It's not something I've got to find. Just, just, just be simple and easy. Simple and easy. Calm down. <laughs> I love that. We didn't even talk about your astrology, but just knowing that you have Mars, Sun, and Rahu in the first, like you, you do have a lot of energy. You have a lot of like force to get things done and move things forward. And yeah, and Mercury's there too. But, so somebody said that I have to work twice as hard as anybody else to get things done but because but it's okay because I have three times as much energy. Right. <laughs> but it is cuz I oh. <laughs> Totally. Um so do you have a morning routine and what part of it for you is non-negotiable? Uh, the cup of tea is non-negotiable. <laughs> I get up and I go outside and I pick a flower. I've got wild space on two sides here. I pick a, a flower, not one that I've cultivated, but I walk on the hill somewhere and get a flower and I come back and I take a piece of incense. Uh, and I've got an altar over there. And as you can see behind me, there's Shinrazi and there's Hanuman and Durga and Maharaji and Jesus and Ganesh and Shiva and everybody. And I wave the incense. As I'm doing this, I'm really paying attention to who I am. And by that, I mean, sometimes I'm waving the incense and I'm, I'm trying to pay attention. I'm trying to connect. I'm saying, I'm waking up, uh, Maharaji God. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of not very present here. Please forgive me. <laughs> I'm feeling slightly guilty that I'm not there. Sometimes I'm feeling that I'm receiving the love from the deity. That it's not like I'm there to do my duty because I've got this morning routine, but it's this, there's this love affair that's happening. And sometimes I'm just waving a stick of, a stick of incense. I'm not even doing it. It's just the incense is waving itself. There's no deity in Dale. It's just all happening. And sometimes when that's happening, I say, should I feel guilty that I'm not feeling devotional? But then it reminds me of that great quote about Hanuman, where they said, Hanuman, what's your relationship with Ram? And he said, when I, when I forget who I am, I love Ram. When I know who I am, I am Ram, right? So, uh, that, that waving of the stick of incense is like this revealing uh, who I am and can I surrender into the receiving? Can I surrender into nobody's doing anything? Beautiful. Are there books that you would recommend maybe spiritual books that you come back to again and again, or things related to dying that may be helpful for people in light of this conversation? Well, first of all, we have the, we have the most complete website on the internet about conscious dying. And on there is my recommended reading list okay. that has about 30 books on it. But a couple of books I would mention, I really love Tantra Illuminated by Christopher Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S. There's a book called Hara, by a guy named Durkheim. And I really feel that, that in a lot of American Western spirituality, there's not enough embodiment, that mindfulness often is happening uh, like for, uh, in a conceptual way. And that uh, inhabiting the lower chakras, getting grounded, which we talked about before a little bit, being centered down in the lower belly, the hara, uh, the Chinese call it the dantian, as a foundation then for opening the heart. So, in these traditions, the, the belly supports the heart. And a lot of people in the West try to immediately jump into the heart without having the support. And the heart then can stay open when the environment is supportive, when you're feeling, oh, it's a lovely day and there's somebody I love and I just had a great meal. But then when the doctor gives you bad news or you've got COVID or your football team just lost or whatever your thing is in the world. <laughs> yeah. Then it's a lot harder to keep your heart open because you don't have that foundation in yourself. You're needing the environment to be the support. So there's the book Hara, there's the book Tantra Illuminated. And then my favorite book is Miracle of Love, Ram Dass's collection of Maharaji stories. And then the Hanuman Chalisa itself, but that's that's an acquired taste, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. So we'll by, we'll put a link to the website book list in addition to the website. So if you're listening to this and you want to learn more, um, we'll have those links for you. What are some other things that we should know about the Living Dying Project? How people can get involved? Where they can find you online? Okay, well, as I mentioned, there is this online workshop that's always available, and then there are some live versions, both live in person and Zoom. And if you take any of these, you can be a Living Dying Project volunteer. We have about 180 volunteers around the world who are matched up with clients 
who are people who are dying or at least have life-threatening illnesses, people who are grieving, or people who are deeply caregiving and need, need some support. So that we're basically matching up meditators and people at the edge of death for their mutual benefit. So that they're, they're doing their spiritual practice together. So if you wanted to take one of these workshops, you could then write to us and say, I took the training. I'd like to be a volunteer now. Uh, and we uh, have a long list of volunteers where we're getting more and more clients. I'm not guaranteeing you you're going to get a client right away, but we have, as I say, clients all around the world, too. There's a lot of information there. There are, there are podcasts. I have a podcast channel on the Be Here Now Network, BeHereNowNetwork.com. Ramdas, Krishnas, Alan Watts, Raghu, all those, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. We have this podcast channel. And all the stuff I've just talked about, I, th I have almost 100 podcasts now that uh, go deeply into these things. Oh, and the other thing, oh, <laughs> is that every other Saturday, I have a free Zoom group that has about 880 people in it. And it, it's, it's very popular because it's free, <laughs> I guess. But, and it's nine o'clock to 11 o'clock in California, which is means it's the afternoon in the East Coast, the evening in Europe, middle of the night in Australia. About 60 or 70 people come, but the rest of them get the recording. So there's no pressure to come. You can get a recording every couple of weeks. We explore the Dharma. It's not particularly about dying. It's about, it's about, the living part of the Living Dying Project. Occasionally, that will come up. Like we had to have a few episodes about conscious dying itself, but mostly it's about compassion, tantra, anxiety, emptiness, embodiment, devotion, certainly mm. the usual suspects. Lovely. Well, thank you. Is there anything else you want to share before we finish up? I'm really so grateful for what you're doing in the world. I just want to thank you. Your 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 approach to business and to sharing is to be applauded, and I applaud it. Oh yeah, thank you. And to 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 everybody else right now. Of course, this is one day before the solstice and two days before the fourth anniversary of Ramdas dying, and then it's five days before Christmas. So all these things are happening, right? And it's it's. One of these times of great transition, there's a big transition in my life. The Living Dying Project is really growing and expanding and serving so many more people. So I'm, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to do the work I'm doing, to be here with Paula, to be with all of you guys. And uh, I won't say happy holidays because this might not be coming out till after the holidays, but so much love to everybody. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Ram Ram. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cosmic Business Podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review for us so other spirit-led entrepreneurs can find out about us. I want to thank Team Podcast for production support on this podcast, as well as the musicians of the music that we're listening to now, Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma, from an album Fragments of a Season, which you can check out wherever you listen to music. I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to connecting with you on a future episode.